Uh, mind your own experience. I, I've always loved the admonition to write what you know, certainly. Don't embellish it. Your job in life is to be interesting to yourself, to use everything you have and everything you know. And once you can access that inner state fully, it becomes much easier to write personal essays. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Would you like to write more personal essays? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins and welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. Apart from blogging, writing personal essays is probably my favourite form of writing. I discovered the art of writing personal essays years ago when I was taking writing classes in the Irish Writer Centre in Dublin. If you're not familiar with the genre, basically a personal essay involves writing about an experience or something that happened in your own life as a type of essay. But it's a little bit more to it than that because you're not simply writing a diary entry or a journal entry or explaining what happened. You're writing up an essay about your experiences and what they meant to you, but you're also relating them to some type of universal experience so that your readers can get a takeaway from the essay in question. It's not necessarily self-help or personal development. It's simply a type of writing that explores your experiences and also relates it to experiences your readers may be having. If you're interested in learning more about writing personal essays, I'd recommend picking up the following anthologies. The Art of the Personal Essay, which was compiled by Philip Lopate, and The Best American Essays of the Century, which was compiled by Joyce Carol Otts. Both compilations have dozens and dozens of personal essays that will take you months to get through, but which will help you explore and understand the genre. If you want to write a personal essay, try and write about a meaningful experience from your personal life or from your career. Write it up so it's several hundred or even several thousand words long and try and relate it to something that the readers will understand about life. When you finish your personal essay, it's always good to get them edited or vetted by somebody else uh, because it's probably something you're particularly close to. And of course, you'll want to get it published unless you're writing just for yourself. The best place to get personal essays published or to find places to publish them is the service Duotrope. Duotrope basically compiles places that essayists and actually short story writers can find and then submit their work. It's a place for finding markets and tracking your submissions and it only costs a couple of dollars a month. It's definitely a service I'd recommend you check out if you're interested in getting your personal essays or your short stories published. Now one writer who's done that is this week's interviewee. Her name is Pam Munter. She's a retired clinical psychologist but she's a lot more than that. She's written four books and she's had over 150 personal essays published over the years. Her latest book is called Fading Fame, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood. But Pam also writes a lot of non-fiction and memoir too. In this week's interview, she talks about her approach for writing short stories, plays and personal essays. And she also gets into her life as a stage performer and as a clinical psychologist. Pam also has a particularly interesting insight into the creative process, which is worth hanging on for in about the middle of the interview. And if you find, you know, writing can sometimes be a bit of a lonely profession, this is definitely a conversation you want to hang on for. If you do find this week's episode helpful or useful in any way, consider leaving a short review on iTunes or you can share the show on Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher or wherever you're listening. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can become a Patreon supporter using the link in the show notes and I'll give you discounts on my writing courses, software and books. Now let's go over to this week's interview with Pam Munter. So I wanted to catch up with you, Pam, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we'll talk about your new book and your writing process, but I'm always interested in the personal essay genre. So I'd love to dig into your approach to writing personal essays because 
sounds like you've got quite an interesting background, which has helped you with the writing process. But before we get to any of that, could you give listeners a quick overview of who you are and how you've balanced writing with your professional career? Well, my professional career followed many years of amateur writing, as I suppose it does for all writers. My first publication, if we can call it that, was when I was nine years old. I wrote a newspaper, quote unquote, for the neighborhood. In those days, I might add, there was no Xerox machine. And so it was all done on carbon paper. And it was about the local baseball team, of which I was enamored. I'm not sure why, but I was. And I would do this, you know, when the mood would strike and I distributed it among the neighbors. And that's kind of how it started. And then in high school, I started writing film reviews. I became editor of the high school paper. And fortunately, it was in Los Angeles, so I could go to the studios and watch these films, which was very exciting for a kid. Actually, it would still be exciting for me <laughs> to, to be in a studio. Yeah. And then I was a journalism major in college. And I realized, you know, I don't think this is enough for me. So I went back to school and I got a couple more degrees. Uh, one of them was a PhD in clinical psychology. But even while I was practicing psychology, I was writing newsletters for clients on a quarterly basis. I just couldn't quite stay away from writing. And then as the career started to wind down a little bit because of um, health management organizations, not because I didn't want to do it anymore, I started to write stories about uh, movie stars. I had always been in love with Hollywood, and this was an opportunity to learn more about people I'd been curious about. So there were about, I don't know, maybe two dozen or so lengthy essays about the lives and careers of performers that might be forgotten, you know, if it weren't for essays like this. And that was in films of the golden age and um, classic images, both magazines which appeal to people who like old Hollywood. And I just kept writing. I became a performer. I was doing jazz and cabaret shows around the country and wrote my own shows. So there was always an element of writing in, in my life. And at some point, uh, after some life issues, I went back to school again and got a master in fine arts in creative writing and writing for the performing arts. And my major was nonfiction because that's what I always read. That's what I always wrote. You know, I don't read fiction. I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that, but I'm not a fan of fiction. Even though I write it, I don't, I'm not a fan of it. But after writing uh, a memoir called As Alone As I Want to Be, which consisted of a series of essays, my advisor said, you know, you need a second a genre. So I jumped into fiction very reluctantly. And I thought, you know, I have all this trivia in my head about Hollywood, all these things I've learned about Hollywood. I have a history of being a clinical psychologist where I've jumped into people's lives and heads. Why not mix these up? into a series of short stories and plays about Hollywood, you know, just fictionalize it. So that brought me to fading fame, <laughs> sort of circuitously. And all the essays happened really since the MFA program kind of forced my hand. Once that cap was off the genie, it just started to flow. Did it take you long to write fading fame? Well, it's a series of short stories and plays. And so it was done incrementally over a period of about, I'd say, three years. The first story is about Mary Pickford, and that was the first story I wrote in my MFA program, which was required. But after that, I thought, you know, Mary Pickford was a really interesting person, but there are a lot of women in her situation 
whose fame and identity was stripped away by age. So let's think about the people who have interested you over your life and do a little thinking. And I'll pop these stories one at a time over this period of time. Did you write the stories with bundling together in a compilation in mind, or is that something you did at the end? No, I think after the first couple, I thought, and they were published, I thought, well, maybe, you know, there are other people I could write about. How could I put this together somehow? And, uh, you know, I would go to workshops and they would ask for some piece of writing. And so I would write a story for the workshop because, you know, we all do better when we're under a little pressure. <laughs> Certainly I do. And then the, the plays just kind of happened, too. And I thought, you know, the, some of the plays I've written have this same feminist sexism theme, women struggling in midlife. So let's put them together with this theme. And it's all discussed in a foreword to the book, which talks about, you know, why these people are in the situation they're in. You mentioned that the stories were published before you put them in the compilation. Where, where did you publish them? Uh, you know, I don't have a list in front of me, Brian, but they were published in literary magazines for the most part. Yeah. Uh, and certainly many, I think all of them have been reprinted uh, in different literary magazines. People love to hear about old Hollywood. I just am so delighted to know that because I thought for a long time I was the only one who was obsessed with with all of <laughs> the nature of celebrity and fame. You know, that just people yeah. just don't care. Well, they do care. I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, I guess it's a time that people would romanticize. The reason why I ask about where you published them is I spent a lot of time writing short stories years ah. ago and I didn't have as much success as you because I sent them off to literary journals but they weren't published did you use your deadlines for literary journals because I know they have you know quarterly or monthly deadlines when you have to send something in did you use those as a writing deadline or did you finish the story and then say to yourself you know this would make a great fit for such and such journal you know I didn't know what their deadlines were really so I I was pretty much on my own wavelength I would get an idea head for a story, really a person who interested me, or a situation, and I would write it, and I'd think to myself, where where can I send this? And I do a lot of research on the nature of literary journals and who takes what and what they published in the past. You know, there are tools now to be able to do that kind of research, which there weren't maybe 10 years ago. They're widely accessible to writers now, and you can you can discover who wants to read what you write. It's easier. Any tools that, that come to mind that you could share? Uh, let me think. Um, the Matador Review uh, yeah. published a personal essay of mine. Wow, you got me. Uh, the Manifestation published a couple. Of Was it a case of Googling personal essays and then journals? Yes. Yeah, that's what, that was your approach. Okay. There's a, a, have you heard of Duotrope? I have, yes. That's a fantastic resource for anybody who wants to submit for literary magazines that way, by genre, by whether or not they accept electronic submissions, which is a requirement for me. I don't want to do paper stuff. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's, I think it's D-U-O-T-R-O-P-E for anybody who's listening. It's only a couple of dollars for a monthly subscription. Yes. Uh, recommend checking it out if you're unsure where to submit your work. When you submitted your work and it got published, what did that do for, I suppose, for you as a writer of personal essays and short stories? Well, it, it makes the resume look good. <laughs> <laughs> Writers don't need resumes. <laughs> well, I suspect that when I would uh, submit to another journal and I would mention my list of publications, they'd be, it didn't do anything for me personally as a writer, you know, 
frankly, I I don't need the glory. I'm not interested so much in that. But yeah. it's nice when I get the feedback that people enjoy what I have written, both fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. So you sound like the kind of writer who's not doing it necessarily to earn an income. You're doing it more to share your stories and find readers, basically. I feel very sorry for people who write for a living. Yeah. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> oh. I talk to so many people who are in that situation, and it's very hand-to-mouth. And yeah. The, the whims of an editor you know, 2,000 miles away. And that's just, oh, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> yeah, well, what I would say to anybody who writes for a living is you, you need to build something that you own, like a, a website or an email list. So you're not dependent on an editor. But uh, we still need to work with editors. So did you get feedback from editors for the literary journals about your personal essays and short stories? You know, it was almost always positive. I think of the, all the essays, particularly that I have written, and there have been a ton. There have been maybe two or three editorial changes that have been required. That's very nice. I mean, I appreciate that. I don't know what people experience in that way, but uh, I do a lot of editing. I'm an incubator. I think about what I'm going to write for a long time before I sit down to the computer to do it. So that by the time I do sit down, it just flows out of me. And once that's down and it has a beginning and a middle and an end, I'll go back and, you know, edit, 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 edit. What does your editing process look like? Could you describe it? I read it out loud and see how it flows. You know, I have been a musician long enough to to feel that uh, writing is a little like music. You can feel the syncopation. You can hear the change in bass and treble and where you're going and how it feels, how it flows. And uh, sometimes I trash the whole thing and start over. You know, it's just too dystonic. I can't, I can't do it. But for the most yeah. part, I read it out loud, and then I'll go back and, you know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night sometimes. I'll think, ah, oh, wait a minute, I need to put this in here. She wouldn't do that. And you know, how can I yeah. tell people about my life? <laughs> you know, the pains yeah. of being a memoirist is inevitably. Had you outlined your stories and essays in advance, or do you just sit down and start writing? Well, as I say, I think about it for a long time. Yeah. Something triggers it, usually. You know, something within me or something I'll come up in conversation with someone or something on television or a film or something, and I'll think, you know, I have never written about that particular thing in my life, and people might find it interesting because there's a, a story here. I'm very disclosive in my personal writings, and so people know exactly the joys and the pains of uh, you know going through life experimentally, as we all do. If you had to pick... Fiction or nonfiction, what would be your choice? Well, it would be more politically correct for me to say fiction because we're talking about a book I've written in fiction. But reality is uh, nonfiction is my native soil. That's where I spent most of my life and where I feel the most comfortable writing about other people, mostly. But I also found in the course of writing the memoir that I'm an interesting person. I've had some fascinating experiences growing up in Los Angeles, knowing a lot of interesting people. And living a life that uh, most women don't live of my generation. Yes. Yeah, so you've written four books. The other books were nonfiction. Yes. Yes. The uh, two of them are, uh, one was a early, too early autobiography called Almost Famous. And I wrote that when I was 40, I think, which is yeah. pretty tricky. The second book was a work of fiction. When I was a kid, I would every once in a while come across a film on television 
that starred the same group of people. And I was young. I didn't know about credits. I didn't know how to look people up. You couldn't in those days. And so I became so enamored with this series that when I saw in the TV guide, one of those movies was playing, I would pretend to be sick. I'd have to have a headache or a cough or something that I'd have to stay home and watch that movie. Well, decades passed. And when I started writing about people I was interested in, I kept thinking, who, are, who were those people? And why was it so intriguing to me? And so I went back. The head, the star was a man named Freddie Stewart, who will, <laughs> no one's ever heard of, but he had an absolutely angelic voice. And there were four other characters in the same series. Only one was still alive. And that was Noel Neal, who was best known as the original Lois Lane of the Superman series. She did the radio serial and some of the early film series, and best known as uh, Lois Lane on the Superman television show in the, in the 50s. Yeah. And I spent many hours with her asking about her memories of this series. There were eight films. And it was so interesting to me, that whole era of B-movies, of cranking out films in three weeks, <laughs> and pretty good movies, I might add, that a publisher came to me and said, why don't you write a book about this series? and explore who these actors were. Well, this was right up my alley because these were pretty obscure actors. You've seen them all and you would recognize them all, but you wouldn't know who they were. And so the book came out, it was called When Teens Were Keen, Teenagers of Monogram. Could you give listeners a timeline? Like when did the book come out? Uh, the book came out in 2005, I think, 2006, somewhere around there. Were you writing the book while you were working your job as a clinical psychologist? No, I wasn't. I had stopped by then. Actually, I was okay. performing around the country at that time. I was doing jazz cabaret shows in cities. <laughs> <laughs> that whole career switch happened very quickly. That's a big career switch. <laughs> it was. You know, I always wanted to do that. And when I left yeah. the confines of the office, I thought, why not? You know, what carpe diem here? Yeah. So I took some classes and found an agent and uh, was in about a half a dozen independent films, all in the Portland, Oregon area where I lived at the time. Took singing lessons, and I thought, you know, I can do this. So I staged a show in Portland, videotaped it, sent it out to a bunch of clubs, and to my shock and surprise, they hired me to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was fun. It was a, a time in my life uh, when I didn't have to worry about anything except being good on stage. You strike me as somebody who's always had a big creative project on the go. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, if your life isn't interesting to you, who else is going to care? You know, I think you have to kind of use yourself up and use all aspects of yourself. And needless to say, it's fodder for your writing career. It is. It is. Extensively about the joys and woes of performing and how hard it is to walk away from it when you know you really can't do that anymore and how yeah. it is to, to meet famous people and uh, just uh, you know integrating one's life as a writer is one of the best things about being a writer i think nonfiction. so i have to ask what, what was it that made you walk away and move towards writing well there were a couple of things one is that i don't think i was good enough i mean i was playing some really nice clubs but yeah. You know, I did, by my standards, the, the reviews were fine, but it wasn't about them. It was about me. And the other thing is that the nature of performing is that it's very emotionally volatile. 
you're up and down, you're on stage or you're off. You know, and I understand these fading fame women because they went through exactly that. Once you're off, it's very lonely. And my personal disposition is very even. I, you know, I don't have a lot of super highs, super lows. I don't get angry easily. You know, I'm just not that kind of person. But showbiz, what the kind I was doing demanded that kind of, you have to plug into the system. And it became wearing was hard on relationships because you're traveling all over the country. You know, there's just no ground floor when you're doing that. And I, it sounds exhausting. It, it was exhausting. Very rewarding, certainly, but the dues were high. Have you noticed parallels between writing and your performing career? I feel more in control as a writer, certainly. I'm the one who determines output. I don't always determine where it goes or if it's published, but I'm finding that the process itself is enough for me as a writer. And there are no standards against which to judge myself, which is very nice. The standards are all very internal. Is this a better story than the one I wrote six months ago? Have I learned anything as a writer, you know, now that I'm writing about this person? Is this any better? It's harder to do that as a performer. Yeah, you, you mentioned an interesting idea a few minutes ago that performing was in a way a lonely profession. A lot of writers would say writing can be a lonely profession. Is yes. that something you've noticed as well? Uh, I don't feel that, but I understand how that is. The MFA program that I was in for a couple of years has a very tight subculture of support on Facebook and the times when people get together. You know, one of the things that surprised me most about getting into that MFA program was I expected a lot of other introverted, quiet people like me, and they weren't. They were gregarious and social and, you know, wanted to go out for drinks and talk and okay, I can do that. So loneliness is, you know, as a clinical psychologist, I know that loneliness is something you can handle by creating a stronger sense of yourself. And certainly I have many decades of experience in doing that. Yeah, it's an, that's an interesting idea. I was in a writing group years ago, and I suppose it's a cliche to say writers are all introverts, but <laughs> we did actually go out for drinks. But I think it's because we had something in common. We talk about stories we were, and we we're having problems with books that we liked maybe the conversations we weren't having with other friends who weren't as interested in you know creative hobbies uh so yes. it's definitely something i found you, you said something else that was really interesting uh, that one way to combat it or get over it is having a strong sense of self what about the idea that writers shouldn't attach their value to their work because you could be get a you know negative review or it might not sell as many copies as you liked that can put off new writers? Well, I think the issue is a little bigger, Brian. It's internal versus external locus of control, as psychologists say. It's whether or not you go through your life seeing yourself in the faces of others, waiting for other people's judgment to tell you if you're any good, if you're worthwhile, if you're liked, if you're loved, or developing that strong sense of yourself, developing your own baseline and your own standards for what's good, and whether or not you're likable, <laughs> you know, when you do things that violate your own standards. And in a way, it insulates you. I mean, I'm not saying that rejection isn't disappointing. It is. Yeah. But it's not a cataclysmic thing. You know, particularly in writing, you just pick it up and you send it someplace else. You know, and I know sooner or later, someone will like it. But the important thing is that I like it and that it has reflected the best possible writing I can do at that moment. 
That's all mm-hmm. I can expect. That's all I can control. Yeah, that's all any creative person can expect once you've put, you know, your your heart and soul into it. When you are writing, do you spend long writing on a given day? You know, I admire people that have that kind of discipline. Oh, was it Ernest Hemingway who claimed to write X number of words every day? He did. He had a whiteboard or, a, well, not a whiteboard, but he had a, some sort of chart near where he wrote and he'd put his word count up on it. I'm in awe. I just, I just can't. <laughs> I think once the, the incubation has, has been completed, and this yeah. is true fiction or nonfiction, and I sit down and I write it, it flows. And as long as it takes, that's where I am on the couch with my laptop hitting the keys. Everything else stops. It has to. Like any writer, I'm afraid it'll go away. You know, what happens if I don't get it down now? Yeah, I know. It's, it's good to, I suppose, turn up at the same time. Well, I find it's helpful if I turn up at the same time every day. Uh, uh, even if I don't have any ideas, I still have to write something because here I am. <laughs> Good for you. I admire that. Yeah. Well, it works for me, but every every person is different, I guess. So you've written four books. Are you, are you planning to write another book? Well, I have another book of essays sort of in the oven. Yeah. Uh, I'm sending it out. It's, uh, it's called, <laughs> forgive the narcissism, it's called Fascinating Me. Good title. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this based on your career as a clinical psychologist? That it sounds well, like it might be. About that, but I, you know, I think my experiences have been more wide ranging than that. As a performer, for instance, I was able to record a CD at Capitol Records in Hollywood uh, about uh, celebrating Doris Day, who was a big role model for me as a little girl. And my producer suggested I send this CD to her in Carmel, just where she lived. I was so reluctant. I, I thought, you know, I hope she isn't angry with me. She isn't resented. I hope I'm not embarrassing her. This is before, of course, long before she died and before all the Doris Day furor started. And I saw it sent it to her. And what came back was a personal letter from her saying how much she enjoyed it, how much she appreciated it. She loved my singing. Now, the irony here is that I spent so many hours of my childhood in my bedroom listening to Doris Day sing. And now here she was in her house listening to me. I mean, how great is that? (laughs) That's brilliant. (laughs) It's an amazing thing. So, of course, that demands a written essay about the history with Doris Day. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly does. What would your tips be for anybody who wants to start writing personal essays? Uh, mind your own experience. I, I've always loved the admonition to write what you know, certainly. Yeah. Don't embellish it. Your job in life is to be interesting to yourself, to use everything you have and everything you know. And once you can access that inner state fully, it becomes much easier to write personal essays. The other thing I would suggest is that you consider the universality of your experience. Now, in my life, there are things that I've done that I know people can't particularly relate to. Specifically, you know, I was on a, a network television program called 2020 with Geraldo Rivera. And we were talking about cults, and all of us got sued for $100 million. <laughs> you know, most people can't relate to the specifics of that, but they can relate to the stress of... Yeah under that kind of pressure. And so when I was writing the essay about it, I talked about how it is day to day to wonder if you're going to have a house to live in, if you're going to have an income, if you're going to be able to survive this. 
Can you say what happened with the case? Was oh, yeah. yeah. Struck out? Pulled out of court, of course. I mean, it was yeah. just a blowhard thing by the cult to, okay. to from uh, being a court witness, an expert witness uh, against many of the people who died in this cult. Okay. And with that, they were successful. But it didn't cost me anything, which is good. Yeah. Yeah, now some writers do worry about getting sued for something that they've published. So yeah. it's definitely a valid concern. Uh, I liked your point about it's all material, like your your life is is material for your writing. That That's definitely something I found as well for nonfiction. Are there any nonfiction essayists that have influenced you or that you'd recommend people check out? I'm a big fan of Megan Daum, uh, D-A-U-M. She has written, I don't know, three or four books maybe of essays. I've never met her. I've never talked with her, but she has a, a sort of an, an agility as a writer where she can combine something that's really very sad and make it funny. And I appreciate that's kind of my lifestyle too. I mean, there's always snark somewhere residing within me. And Megan is is able to put that all into an essay and captivate you almost immediately with it. I just love mm. what she uh, Vivian Gornick is another one who has written several books of essays uh, about New York, for the most part, her life in New York. And she has the capacity, I think, to even if you aren't a resident of New York, or maybe you've never even been in New York, she has the capacity to bring you along on her journey. And I admire a writer who can do that so fluidly as she can and, and engage you. You want to be with her. You want to know what's going on. Yeah, that's something any good nonfiction writer can do. Yeah, I particularly like Mary Carr. I'm not sure if you if you read her. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, she, she's excellent. So you've you've also been published in over 150 personal essay journals. And I know we mentioned duotrope earlier on but do you have any other tips that you could offer for somebody who wants to get published in journals or get republished persistence don't give up keep it going yeah. uh whenever i write a short story or an essay or even a play i send it out to maybe five or six places at a time and as i get the rejection you know i replace that and i just keep pushing it out the door somehow and I, you know i think there's only one uh, one essay of all the ones I've written that have hadn't found a publisher, and I haven't given up. <laughs> I think there's a home for this one. All the short stories uh, have been published, as I said, and, and a couple of times, which is lovely. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, and the plays have been produced, so you know life is good. They haven't all been pro- produced, and there's one kind of weird one that's hanging out there that I'm hoping at some point. It too, by the way, is infuses Hollywood into its theme. It's I can't help myself. It's just everywhere around me in my head. Yeah, I, I, listeners can't see it, but on your bookshelf, it looks like you have a lot of books about Hollywood. I do. I do. Everything about me is Hollywood, for better yeah. or for <laughs> Yeah. Sounds like it's a theme that's been present in all of your works. Yes. Different aspects of it. You know, as a kid, I wanted to be a movie star, but I think everybody did. And I yeah. did do I wasn't very good at it, but I did. But I ended up feeling very fortunate to be able to write about it even if it's in a fictional sense. And as I say, I brought my expertise with these particular people I've written about uh, into a fictional context. So there's a story about Mary Pickford, who was a 1920s big movie star, America's sweetheart, they called her, one of the first big movie stars. And in writing about her, I dropped little nuggets for film historians everywhere who know that that part of the story is true. And that's just so much fun to do. Writing can be fun. Yeah, it should be fun. I mean, if 
otherwise what's the point i mean and some people need to write to pay the bills but you, it's also good to have something that's enjoyable too because you got to spend all day doing it <laughs> that's right indeed and it's all of you in everything so yeah. it, better, it better suit you so Pam, where can people find more information about you your new book or your essays well, Fading Fame is on sale at Amazon.com, as is everything in life, I suspect. Uh, you can find uh, links to my stories, uh, essays, in PamMunter.com. And those are probably the best places to find me. Sure, I'll be sure to put them in the show notes as well. It was very nice to talk to you today, Pam. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store or sharing the show on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you're listening. More reviews, more ratings and more shares will help more people find the Become a Writer Today podcast. And did you know for just a couple of dollars a month, you could become a Patreon for the show? Visit patreon.com forward slash become a writer today or look for the support button in the show notes. Your support will help me record, produce and publish more episodes each month. And if you become a Patreon, I'll give you my writing books, discounts on writing software and on my writing courses. Thank you.